podcast where we discuss the competitive side of the game. I'm Charles, and with me today are Richard, Ian, and Alexander. In today's episode, we will be talking about the Monsters of Moria, and in our open topic, we'll be discussing our favorite armies under 500 points. So for our main topic today, we'll be covering the Monsters of Moria. There are six monster profiles in the Moria army list, and today we'll be focusing on the three monsters that we have not really covered in depth yet. So for the Watcher in the Water, the Cave Drake, and the Cave Troll, you can go back to our earlier episodes, and we have covered them more in depth there. The Watcher in the Water and the Cave Troll have their own individual episodes, and the Cave Drake can be found in our favorite Unnamed Heroes episode. So that leaves us with the Balrog, the Dragon, and the Dweller in the Dark. Be on your guard. There are older and fouler things than orcs in the deep places of the world. The first profile of the three we will cover is the Balrog of Moria. Alexander, do you mind going over the profile and the special rules for the Balrog? The Balrog has the spirit, monster, infantry, and hero keywords, and is a hero of legend. It has a move of 6, fight 10, shoot 3, strength 9, defense 9, 4 attacks, 10 wounds, courage 7, no might, 10 will, 0 fate. Its war gear includes giant flaming sword and a fiery lash uh, the fiery lash this is a throwing weapon with a range of eight inches and a strength of seven additionally a model that is hit by this weapon and is not slain is dragged directly towards and into base contact with the balrog even over intervening models or terrain if the model cannot be placed where it should be placed instead place it in base contact with the balrog as close as possible to the position it should have been in If, for whatever reason, the model cannot be placed anywhere in base contact, then it is not moved at all. Its special rules include Ancient Evil, Fearless, Resistant to Magic, and Terror. It also has Goblin Mastery. Friendly Moria Goblin models within 12 inches of the Balrog automatically pass Courage tests. It has Flame of Udun. The Balrog is never considered to be unarmed, and any model that suffers a wound from the Balrog strikes, even if it is subsequently saved by fate and not slain, must roll a d6. On a 6, the model suffers the Set of Blaze special rule. Additionally, the Balrog is immune to any fire-based attacks or special rules, such as a Dragon's Breath Fire or the Set of Blaze special rule. And finally, Demon of the Ancient World. The Balrog may call a heroic combat each turn without the need to expend a point of might. Additionally, special rules and strikes that would slay the Balrog instantly, such as Drain Soul or a Morgul Blade, will only inflict half of the Balrog's starting wounds rather than all of them. So, I guess I'll just start off by saying that at 350 points, it is usually the centerpiece of the army because he's so expensive. And we covered the Legendary Legion Depths of Moria from the Quest of the Ring Bear episode. And I think that might be the best way to run him now because that Legion gives him a few buffs that will kind of cover that when we move on to our army lists. But he is just going to be um, the model that kind of does the heavy lifting for you if you build a list around this profile, I think. 
Well, we kind of got like the uh, the Sauron treatment, I guess, when with with that extra special rule in the Legion. But I guess we we can wait on that to talk about that. But I don't know, man. I feel like the Balrog's in a good place right now. He seems quite usable, but not like absolutely OP. That being said, though, I don't know. What, what do you guys think about this opinion? I've heard this. I think it was Dead and said it on an unexpected podcast. They talked about the Balrog and they kind of compared it to like Smog, where it's like. It's just not a fun model to play against. Do you guys think that has merit? I don't I don't think he's actually that unfun. I think you can argue when he gets to whip like a very, very big hero, maybe the opponent's leader, and you insta-kill it similarly to the Watcher and the Water's tentacles. I think there's a aspect of making the game less fun whether you win or lose, if you're trying to like base the game around that one shooting phase. But I think once he gets into combat and nothing crazy happens before then, I think he's more than a fair model because I don't think he's that unstoppable. There's answers to him. He does enough for the controlling player to be able to occasionally get value out of him. So I don't know. I I don't think I don't really feel the unfun aspect when I come up against them or if I'm using him. I can understand the unfun part if you don't know how to deal with him. Like I played against him in a recent tournament and I was playing Helm's Legion and I didn't really have an answer to slow him down unless I charged Helm Hammerhand into the Balrog basically. But thankfully that wasn't necessary based on that scenario's objectives. So I just let him kill two of my models each turn and it turned out being okay. But I think using him is definitely not boring. I think he actually takes some skill to use because he is such a big model with a big base and you only have a certain amount of maneuverability with him. He does have the heroic combats, which helps him get to where he needs to a little bit easier, but you only have a certain amount of turns to do the damage. You know, even though you have amazing stats and he's very powerful when you can get him in combat, it always feels like you need to... It's hard to get the most out of him sometimes. It's like when we were discussing Sauron in a couple episodes. Like, he can do a lot, but you have to know how to use him. And he has to deal all the damage he needs to do in time. I think, I think in a similar vein... I think some complaints that I've heard are generally also from newer players. I find he's kind of a pub stomp kind of hero. So what that means is that I think he does probably more than he should against a less experienced player. But then versus more experienced players, he probably does a little less. So I think because of like him having no might and him having to rely on his heroic combat and having a bigger base... He can be quite predictable, but you have to know what you're doing to block him out with your own troops. But if you don't know how to block him out or deal with him, then you're just going to end up losing your big heroes, and you know that will make back his points extremely fast. And yeah, um, I think I've definitely seen like Balrog like roll over newer players. It's a good point about the might, actually. Like, I feel like a list that has the Balrog is going to require your might usage in general to be on point because you're going to have like like very very low levels of it because he, he doesn't bring anything to the table and then i guess most of the time you're going to be bringing captains and stuff and you're not going to have that many other heroes to support him as well so yeah maybe just easy counter is just make sure you keep your your heroes alive and your might alive and then once they're low you can just heroic move them and put a guy into them 
obviously you guys can add more if you have more to say, but I'm just going to go into my score for him because I kind of know where I sit with him. Like Ian said, I think he's definitely a good model now, and you can rely on him for competitive play. But we kind of all think here that Moria is such a diverse list with so many ways to play it. I think the Balrog way to play Moria, it's it's definitely not the only way to play it competitively. So I want to say he's like a 7, because you could do really well with him, but we'll talk about some of the weaknesses when we get into the list, but... Moria doesn't have a way to give him a banner reroll, for example. Um, he doesn't have any might to boost his rolls. So I've definitely seen and experienced rolling like a three high, four high with the Balrog, and there's just nothing you could do about it. You can't spear support him. You can't give him any rerolls. So he does have his drawbacks. When he loses a combat, it's a big deal because that might be one of like the only three or four combats you will have with him that game, and you just lost it. I, I think I'll go slightly higher, maybe give him an 8, because when he's good as the centerpiece of a Moria army, especially in the Legion, then he can be excellent. But like Charles said, it, it's certainly not the only way to play Moria. They've got so many different options. And it's, he does tend to sometimes get jammed up really easily in certain situations, especially... We've we've talked about how he can do really well against less experienced players. I think that at the same time, less experienced players also have a harder time playing him effectively. So it's one of those things where, you know, if, if things go well, he's fantastic. But if he gets stuck somewhere, then he can really drag an army down. Because in terms of games where there's, you know, multiple objectives, like a, a domination, for instance, that is such a large chunk of your army that only move six inches that he kind of gets stuck in no man's land sometime, but he's still quite good. So I'll give him an eight. I think I'm going to do the classic, uh, two ratings system. So I think just in like the normal warrior list, he's probably like a six for me. Like, I think he, he's better than that, but he's brought down by the fact that Richard was talking about, like it takes like a lot of skill to like bring him and get him like to full use. That being said, there's, like, just extra bonuses in the Legendary Legion that just, like, kind of tip him over to, like, a little... Well, like, just, it makes him way better. So I think in, in that sense, in that list, I would give him, like, an 8, probably. Yeah, I'm gonna do a similar cop-out like Ian here. Copy him. I think 7 in the regular list and 8 in the Legion, just for the additional bonuses. And also because I think in the regular list there are more powerful options that you can build in a pure Moria without them. To Ian and Richard, in eight, you're saying like, as in power level, not necessarily like, because he is auto take because you have to have him, right? It's like how useful or how like, how much your list revolves around him. Yeah, it's more just to show like, he is definitely better in the Legion, I think. I guess is, is why chose those numbers the numbers themselves aren't okay. somewhat arbitrary i guess but like he's definitely way better in the in the legion i think okay yeah okay so i'll go with the my first list which is it is a depths of moria list if you want to hear more detailed thoughts on the depths of moria go check out our quest of the ring bear episode so the list has the balrog as the leader and in his warband there's six moria goblins with shield five Moria Goblins with Spear, and seven Goblin Prowlers. Second Warband is a Goblin Captain with Shield. 
leading eight Moria goblins with shield and four Moria goblins with spear. And the final warband is a Moria black shield shaman with a Moria drum team. So the standard one, not the black shield one. And then two Moria goblins with bow and one Moria goblin with bow and spear. So that is 700 points and 38 models. Um, just to summarize some of the things that the Depths of Moria gives you, it gives Moya goblins six inches around the Balrog plus one fight value. And it also gives them the rule similar to the one Beardur has that Ian described, which uh, your army does not break until the Balrog has five or less wounds, um, or it cannot break until the Balrog has five or less wounds. And if the Balrog dies, then you're automatically broken. The Balrog has two forms, uh, Shadow and Flame, and basically he can have greater protection from shooting when he's Shadow, and then when he becomes Flame is when he attempts to uh, set a Blaze model. And then the other nice thing about this Legion is that the drum gives uh, VP. So this list is kind of low on numbers for a standard Moria list. It's kind of expected because it's a Balrog list, but I would say it's still a little above average. The rule that makes it harder for enemies to break you, it really helps. So I actually feel pretty comfortable with 38 models. The drum team is great in the Legion because it gives you the VPs. And it's pretty straightforward. The main decision I had to make between hero selection was whether to have two Moria Goblin captains or one captain and one shaman. I went with the shaman for a little more utility. And... In terms of composition, I put all of my Prowlers in the Balrog's Warband because the fight value buff, I wanted to affect all of the Prowlers. And just to have like a fight for battle line, I think is pretty solid in Moria. Since they do lose the army bonus, it is harder to gain that fight value buff. So I wanted to keep all of my higher fight value warriors near the Balrog. But that's about it. I think I'm always going to try to whip the enemy leader because if I can get Fiery Lash to work on the enemy leader... The leader will be pulled behind the Balrog and surrounded by Prowlers, and I think it would be very hard for them to get out of that one, even though it's a trick that probably most experienced players will see coming. Yeah, that's about it. What do you guys think? Balrog? Good. Drum? Good. Numbers? Decent. I like it. That's my whole thought process right there. That's literally the depth of the whole idea. I'm just not over the idea that what, with traps uh, attacks, it's like 10 or 8 strength 9 hits isn't enough. you got to have the Prowlers there getting plus 2 to wound. <laughs> I think I think you'll get them. But yeah, so the drum bonuses, does, does the drum become board wide in the Legion? It's board wide, and then it still only affects all the goblins, right? It doesn't affect the ball Yeah, just, just the goblin keyword. That's um, still pretty good, though. Yeah, yeah. And and then it actually counts for BPs. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a pretty straightforward kind of list. Like, I like the addition of the Black Shield Chaman with the Balrog. Not that the Balrog will have many issues coming up against it. I don't know. I think I think the issue with the Legion is that there's a lot less options that, compared to the regular Moria list. So I think this is a good way to build it. And I think most legions, you will see something like this. Of course, if they don't take the Black Shield Chaman, they would probably just take another captain and, yeah, have two heroes with March. So I think you're going to, most legions will look very similar at this points level. But I think it's really solid. And I think it could do really well. Now, I know uh, Richard has had experience playing with this legion. If it was you, 
would you have gone with two captains just because you're already low on might? Yeah, I think low on might and also like it's it's a little bit tougher on the heroes because, you know, like we talked about in the past, like the fog of war and and the assassination, clash by moonlight, those kind of scenarios, your secondary heroes actually matter. And I'll also say that personally, I don't like gambling with just having one caster. I always try to stack up on it if I have to, just because having the one caster, if you're trying to uh, shatter, um, let's say, a three-wheel hero, there's a very good chance that your shatter won't go through the entire game. So you're essentially spending 50 points on, like, just draining someone's will, and then which afterwards you can't really take advantage of. Maybe maybe the ancient evil on the Balrog will make the enemy, you know, break, and they can't use the will to stack. But that that's just, like, that just doesn't do a whole lot, in my opinion. Yeah, I know one having one shatter is not very consistent. I think my thought process was to kind of shatter enemy, like, banners. If in a scenario where banners give VP, it's kind of, it puts you, like, two steps ahead because you have a banner, and then you can get rid of your opponent's banner. But it's a little bit situational with the Shaman. I think we've had this debate before in a previous episode. It's like, is it worth 50 points? Maybe not, but... I guess it depends on your opponent and the scenario whether it'll pay off. I, I think I like the 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 shaman pick in this situation because like you have the ball rug, but he can only go after like one big threat at a time, and then the rest of your army doesn't like you don't really have anything else that can try and do that shutdown. Like I don't know, so you're going against Gondor, you could have the ball rug go after Boromir, but that's going to take a few turns. And then if you can shatter down like Huron's sword or something, that reduces that secondary hero's effectiveness a lot. So I, I think I like the Shaman pick in that sense. Also, like, obviously more might is always better, but I feel like there isn't that much of a difference in a list between three might and four might at 700 points. Like, your opponent's still going to have a huge might advantage anyway. It's I, I, I would say, though, it's kind of dealer's choice either way, but I, I'm leaning towards the Shaman. I like the versatility that, that you went for. Got a score for me? <laughs> I'm flip-flopping as always. <laughs> um... It it might be a legend, just because of like the ball rug just becomes so ridiculous, and I definitely think you could take a tournament with that. So yeah, I think I'm on like a soft legend for for this. I think so. I'm gonna give it a strong valor because of the uh, weaknesses we've talked about with the ball rug. At times, they do still occur in the Legion list. I really like the way you've built it, and I think it definitely could win a tournament. Like Ian, I like the uh, the shaman pick as well, just because it brings something that you otherwise don't have in the list. But yeah, I think it's quite strong. Yeah, I think it I think it's quite close for me. Either like soft legend or like a, like a high valor. Maybe like I I would probably lean towards a bit maybe high valor just because I think at a tournament if I came up against or if I saw this as one of the lists coming in. It wouldn't be, like, on the top of my list where I'm like, I really don't want to play this. I think it's a really strong list, but I wouldn't be necessarily scared because I feel like I would probably bring a list to have answers to some of the stuff in here. Yeah, it is a pretty much a single threat list, and at 700 points, it can be a bit of a gamble. Okay, let's move on to our second profile today, which is the dragon. Ian... Do you mind going over the dragon profile and just go over the stat line and the rules? Okay. Uh, brace yourselves. This might be kind of long. 
So, we have the dragon. He is 250 points. He has the dragon, monster, infantry, hero, keywords. Hero of Valor. Um, his basic stat line is move 6, fight value 7, shoot value 2+, plus, strength 7, defense 7, attacks 4, 7 wounds, and courage 4. And he has 3-3-3 three, three, three for might, will, and fate. His warrior is claws and teeth. And his heroic actions are heroic channeling, heroic strike, heroic strength, and heroic defense. Now, his options are kind of interesting. He has four of them, and they're all worth 50 points. But you're only allowed to take up to two of them, maximum. So you can take one or two or none of them. I really would not suggest taking none of them. <laughs> um, well, I guess we'll, I'll go through them, but there's, there's one that you almost always want to take. Anyway, so the first uh, of his options is Breathe Fire. So Breathe Fire basically works as like a bow. So it functions as a bow shot in game, and the dragon has to expend a point of will to do it. If the shot hits its target, the target and all models within two inches, friend and foe, suffer a strength 10 hit, and any model that takes an unsaved wound, so not prevented by fate points, or theory, I guess, if they suffer a wound, they're automatically slain. So very deadly, very scary, but it costs a point of will, so you're only limited to three shots a game, maximum, if you hit with all of them. So that one's interesting. The second upgrade he can buy is Fly, and that just gives him the Fly special rule. So that means he can move 12 inches a turn, and he can do the little hoppy thing that flying models do in this game. The third upgrade is Tough Hide. All that does is it increases its wounds and defense to 9 as opposed to 7. So it makes him a lot more defensive, way harder to wound. And his last upgrade is called Worm Tongue. Basically, it gives him some magic casting ability, so he gains the ability to spend a single point of will each turn without reducing his store, kind of like a staff of power, as long as he uses that will point to cast one of his magical powers. And he has two magical powers that he can cast. He has Transfix with a range of 12 on a 3+, and Compel with a range of 12 on a 4+. So it kind of turns him into like a mean caster, like a support caster kind of role, that like to pull things out so he can go munch them. And to round out the profile, he has a few special rules. The first one he has is Harbinger of Evil. Monstrous Charge, Resistance to Magic, Survival Instinct, ooh, and Terror. Initial impressions of this model, and I will go out in the open and say this, that Survival Instinct with a Courage of 4, that one hurts. That one hurts on a model that's potentially 350 points. (laughs) That hurts a lot. Survival Instinct is never fun. And it's pretty much the reason why I never really think about taking Wormtongue with this profile, just because I feel like the, the will points are typically needed for other things, and keeping them around for uh, Survival Instinct is definitely one of them. Well, Breathe Fire also costs will, so what Alex is hinting at is he's picking Tough Hide. <laughs> yeah, so it kind of boils down to it is that all of these upgrades cost 50 points, but because of the way the profile works... Like, the Breathe Fire and the Worm Tongue, you don't really want to use them as much. The other two are just better to take, right? Fly, just because it gives you a ton of mobility. So I think we, we all agree, like, Fly is probably, you, you, like, you always take Fly. And then the Tough Hide, it just makes a really big difference. So, like, Defense 9 compared to 7 is huge. Like, it cuts down the amount of wounds you're going to be taking, and thus the amount of Courage tests you're going to have to take by a lot. So I think Tough Hide is a pretty good one. It's like a reasonable upgrade. The other two are kind of, like, very situational, I think. I think it's a really frustrating profile. 
because when when this new edition came out, a lot of the other monsters got points drops, got buffs, and the dragon pretty much didn't change. And I was kind of confused. I think he's about maybe 50 points overcosted in his base. And besides fly, I think the other upgrades should be like 25 points. But that's just from a balanced perspective. I, I think all of the upgrades have some merit. I don't think that like any of the upgrades are useless, but since you're only allowed to pick two, it's probably going to be Fly and Breathe Fire. Those, that's probably my favorite build. I think the tough hide is, I can see the argument for it, but if you're careful with how you maneuver the dragon and you're an experienced player in terms of positioning your models, you probably won't give your enemy too many chances to win your dragon. And I think paying 50 points for what is kind of like a precaution is pretty hefty. It's it's pretty uh, not worth it, in my opinion. You could just kind of play him a little more safe and still pretty much keep him alive. I don't know if you guys agree with me, but that's kind of my thoughts on Tough Hide. Yeah, I think that's really kind of list building dependent. As you'll see with the uh, really odd list that I brought, it's kind of like a coin toss. Yeah. Typically, I'd probably say that Tough Hide is, I, I can see the reason to take it, but at the same time, it can be a bit redundant. He's already got seven wounds. He's, he's not really going anywhere as long as you don't kind of fly him off into a position where he can't be helped and then he gets stuck there. Whereas if you protect him and insulate him, he probably doesn't need the upgrade. Yeah, I think um, you guys hit it on the money here. I think... I think Breathe Fire and Wormtongue are the glass cannon kind of builds. It can definitely put out the most damage. And I, I would say that, you know, if you're going for more like a brawly kind of list or like he's maybe more of a focal centerpiece, then maybe you go with Tough Hide. I think if you want to play him more as like a assassin, I think Breathe Fire and even Wormtongue, I really like actually, you know. Because he does have Heroic Channel as well with his Transfix and Compel. So being able to pull out a hero, having them not be able to strike up to him, having his Fight 7, that's an instant kill right there. He's That can almost be like the Galadriel Guahir shoved into one model. I know he's the price of Guahir and Galadriel all in one model, but he can do that, right? So that's actually you know a really cool thing. Say he pulls out LSR and just one-shots him, you know, maybe his 350 points is worth it and getting Wormtongue. So I, I think I think it depends what kind of, you know, strategy you're going to go for. So, I yeah, I agree with Charles. I don't think any of these are necessarily bad. I feel like that's a good point that we, we should just clarify quickly that you mentioned is, yeah, he's he is a mo- like a monster that can have fly and monsters charge. And that is... That is gross. Like, that's... If you get the charge off and you win the fight, that's 10 strength 7 attacks. That's... That's big ouchie. That, is, that, is that, like, the same as Gullivar? Or what, what's Gullivar's strength? Gullivar's strength 8? Strength yeah. 8. But... Yeah. And one more thing about Wormtongue. I think um, we were just talking about the Black Shield Shaman. I think this is a model that could go well with the Black Shield Shaman. Because, you know, you, do you want to get compelled out and killed? Or, you know, if you use the will for that, then you're likely going to be shattered. And good luck fighting a dragon, you know, with your beat stick that has no weapon. That's true. It's a good it's a good combo at high points where you can afford to include both. Uh, I can see that synergy working. Especially because Moria doesn't really have that much magic. Because if you look at 
like just the the casters that are available in Moria, it's there. I don't think there's another transfix. I guess you can transfix with the Goblin Shaman, but it's it's not very efficient. If you think about it, he's kind of very similar in terms of his um, tankiness to um, Shelob. They both have defense seven and about the same amount of wounds. Shelob has more will to pass the courage tests uh, to avoid the survival instinct, but the dragon has three fate. So I think if you can if you can protect Shelob in a normal mortar list, I think the dragon might be a little bit harder because of his base size, but it's kind of similar in like the likelihood that he will flee, I think. In terms of my score for the dragon, you know, before our discussion, I was going to go like a four because I just don't see it ever making its points back. But there's always the chance that a breathe fire could hit like a big hero. And like Richard said, you could compel out like a LSR and kill him. So there is like the off chance, depending on what your opponent has in his army, that he can make back his points. Or even if he doesn't make back his points... your opponent has no answers and the dragon can win the game for you or do all right. So maybe I'll bump it up to a five. I'll, I'll give him a five. That's funny. Cause I was also going to give him a four right before this conversation. I was like, you know what? He's really not a, a model that I would take by choice. He falls down the ladder against a, a couple of other monsters in the Moria list alone. He is tough to play and trying to build a list with the dragon was that it feels like a lot of points because you're going to give him likely two upgrades and it's just it's a lot of points in a moria list to be putting into a hero like that that doesn't have some of the advantages of the balrog or uh, the watcher in the water which is quite a bit cheaper the ability to grab models over battle lines and drag them across especially with uh, access to bat swarms is fantastic the dragon can't do that and i think that makes it a lot harder to kind of put the dragon into a typical moria list and have it work well so for me i was going to give it a four but i think i'll i'll go with charles on this one i'm gonna give him a five i think um i'll give it a 4.5 and that's more saying that it is slightly below average but i also think that It can surprise people when I see it being played at a tournament. You know, people look at it and assume it's a crap model, but then, you know, they end up having a lot of issues when facing it, and they're like, oh, I definitely underestimated this, and they could just lose the game. So the 4.5 is definitely not an F score. You know, I'm going more on the scale that 5 is average. I I think I'm I'm with everybody else on this one. I I think he's a 5 for me, you know? If we're going to put the Balrog at a six in this normal list, I think he kind of sits, yeah, he, he he's not quite at that level. He's definitely not as easy to play and as useful, I think, in a basic Moria list than the Balrog. So I think a five is a good place to put him. And yeah, just like, he's average. He's still going to, he's going to have some really good games. And there's going to be some games where, you know, you take two wounds, fail all your fate, and he runs away. <laughs> it's very susceptible to being diced, which, you know, in a dice game, it's not always the best thing. So I, th- I think a five is a fair score because he can still also hit quite hard and do do a lot of damage. Quick question before we move on to our army list for the dragon. Do you guys think it's viable to just take one upgrade and just go like a 300-point dragon with fly? Or would that be worse than going 350 and getting two? I, I don't think there's any issue with that, honestly. Because, like, you could... The other upgrades are nice, but, like, as we were saying earlier, like, you could just do dragon with fly... And then take a Moria Black Shield Shaman. With the 50 points that you would have yeah, given. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, the other part of me is thinking, you know, if you're going to do that, there's probably other monsters that you can take that do a similar role better. So maybe it is, yeah, you go for the two upgrades because, you know, you want the dragon to be doing big dragon things and you kind of need two upgrades to do that. All right. So we have two dragon lists today with two different builds. Let's have Ian go over his list first. Uh, Break down the list and let us know what your general strategy is. Okay, so... Because there's two of us doing these li- the dragon list, we kind of had a little bit of a discussion beforehand to figure out which upgrades we wanted to take. So I ended up with uh, uh, Fly and Breathe Fire uh, are the ones that I took. Now, as we kind of discussed earlier, Breathe Fire uses up your will points. And that's a very scary thing. Again, as we mentioned, we have low courage and survival instinct. So part of this list building process for me was if I'm going to take breathe fire i want to try and get a warhorn in there or something to boost up his courage or make him like more likely to be okay so i i when i was building it i was toying around with either getting a warhorn in there or maybe allying in somebody like saruman because he has his standfast affects other heroes i ended up going the warhorn route because a warhorn will affect the dragon throughout the entire course of the game whereas saruman's kind of special rule thing would only affect after you break so you still potential to take a lot of other courage tests right before you break, get some wounds and whatnot. Anyway, the list is a dragon with fly and breathe fire. Uh, he has nine warrior goblins with spear and six warrior goblins with shield. My second warband is Groblog, and he has six warrior goblins with shield, five warrior goblins with spear, and one bat swarm. And my last warband is Allied In. It's the mouth of Sauron with an armored horse, eight black and Numenorians, one black and Numenorian with a banner, one black and Numenorian with a warhorn, and one orc tracker. So, like I said, it's kind of hard to get Warhorns into evil lists, actually. I was surprised that they're not in, like, every list. Like, Good has them in a lot of lists, but then I was flipping through my book, and I'm like, oh my god, there's, like, Harad has it, and Black Numenorians have it, and I think Hunter Orcs. Like, I'm not sure if there's any other ones that have it, and that was surprising to me, because evil kind of needs them the most. Anyway, this list basically is just playing around the dragon, right? You have him, he can breathe fire, and he can do nasty things with flying in and assassinating enemy heroes. And then I have the front, the the Black Numenorians in the front line, and they're just there to buy time. Fight four, defense six, terror, beautiful. That's very helpful, right? And then I got the, the Mouth of Sauron and the Dragon both give out, they both have Hardbringer, right? I think. No, he doesn't no. have Hardbringer. No, he doesn't. No. Oh, okay. But he has terror. So then the Dragon, yeah, the Dragon will work well with the Numenorians anyway, though, because he does have Hardbringer. Uh, or Harbinger? Harbinger. Yeah, it's just play around the dragon, let him do his thing, and then I have like a strong front line just to try and make sure I have enough time to, to let the dragon do its thing and to hopefully prevent myself from breaking too quickly. I think the first thing you guys are going to question is the Grawlblood pick, and that's purely because he's cheap with three might and he has strike, which is maybe not as useful, but I have the bats form in there, so kind of useful, but it's Cheap three might, and he also has heroic defense. So if I need to tie up another big enemy hero while the dragon's doing something else, that's very handy. Same kind of idea with the Mouth of Sauron. He's also pretty cheap for a hero of valor, and he brings some cheap transfix. Uh, Mouth of Sauron's your leader, right? Oh. Oh. I actually hadn't thought about that. Usually I think about this beforehand. I feel like, yeah, he kind of he kind of does need to be the leader. Like... That would really depend on, like, the scenarios you're playing, though. Like, if you're going into, like... If you know what the pack is, there might be some situations where you take the dragon as your leader. But I feel like, yeah, the, most of the time you probably take the Mount of Sauron as the leader and just hide him back. 
Yeah, I think I think the dragon will already have a big enough target on his back. So it's probably for the best to spread it around a bit. I guess my first question or my main question is you said you took Grillblog for the cheap might, but fifty isn't really that cheap compared to the sixty point named or captains that Mordor has. Like like let's say Guritz or some even less than sixty like Grishnak. I'm just wondering if it would be better to have two Mordor Warbands instead of two Moria Warbands. But I do like the composition in general. I'm just questioning whether Grolblog is worth it, because he is a fight three heroic strike. Well, he also, I still have the Moria army bonus, so he can get to fight four. I mean, the small potatoes, but... You don't have the army bonus. Uh, oh, sorry, no, I don't have the army bonus. What am I saying? Yeah, no, I don't. Yeah, you have his special rule, Grolblog's yeah, special that's, rule. Yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, sorry. I, I think I did consider the Orc Captains, but... It kind of cuts into your numbers like more than you'd think. You end up losing like four models, maybe, maybe five. And I'm just like not sure if that's what I want to do. Also, you know, it's supposed to be more of a Moria themed list. So. Yeah, I, I think you're pretty clever to take the Warhorn. You mentioned the Saruman Standfast thing. I think that's cool too, but um, it wouldn't really work in terms of survival instinct. Yeah. Not So I, I get why you didn't go with that. I think the Warhorn is good, but. It's still, like, I don't like taking Warhorns, um, even though it's it's fair, it, it's a good reason to take it. It's plus one on the Dragon's Courage test for 30 points. I mean, if you add that with the 25-point banner you have, you're almost at a Moria drum. If you go mostly goblins and you take out the banner and you take out the horn, you could pretty much almost get, like, an 18-inch drum. So I'm just... I wish the synergies lined up a little more, but I understand the Warhorn pick. I appreciate the Warhorn pick just for the reason it was picked and because we never see Black Numenorean Warhorn. It does also affect Black Numenoreans, which is solid because they become Courage 5. So I, I like that quite a bit. I understand why you would take more goblins with spears and with shields because of all the Black Numenoreans. But at the same time, given the dragon, I feel like I might have still taken more with shields just because if you end up in a situation where you deploy apart from each other, you want them to be able to shield and die slowly. Whereas having so many with spear, I'd worry more about them just kind of falling apart because they're so weak on their own. That's that's all my thoughts. Just to jump back to the thing about not taking those cheaper orc captain heroes, Charles, the three might ones, I remember why I didn't. And I think it came down to the fact that neither of them have heroic defense, which is something I think I would prefer to have in the list just for the versatility of it and being able, if I come up against two big threats, to have answers to two things. I agree, like, the fight three isn't great on Grolblog, but him having defense and strike, I think, is quite handy. Yeah, sure. I wouldn't really worry about survivability. You, you have a bass one in that list, but... I mean, wanting heroic defense is, is not it's not a bad thing. For my score for this list, I think you have to take it in the context that it has a dragon. So you're bringing a dragon to a tournament. How likely will it be that you'll podium with it? I, I think it has the potential to win games, but it's uh, I'm not sure about how consistent it will be in winning games. Um, you've got a 350-point bow... <laughs> Ian. <laughs> He's the most expensive bow in the game. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give it a hero of fortitude. It's solid. 
Ian went from max bows to max cost four bows. It was a, it's a very interesting list. As the other person who had to take the dragon, I sympathize very much with the number of places where Ian had to make sacrifices in a list in order to bring a dragon. It just it takes away from too many different places to really build a what I would consider a really, really, really good list. I'm going to give it a fortitude, but I, I, I commend a, a valiant effort on that one. Alex, I'm, I'm going to sympathize with you on that one. There were many times when I was trying to write these lists where I was just like, man, a cave drake would probably do the same kind of thing for like 200 points less. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No survival instinct. But we're almost at our transition. Richard has to give a score and then we'll transition. I was actually thinking about the Warhorn too, if I had taken the dragon. So I, I really like that choice. I think the only changes that I would make would be very minor to this. I think I would, thinking about the strategy of what I would want to do with this list, you know, because you have the breathe fire on the dragon, it's more like a short-ranged threat. So you're not like shooting at max distance, but once you close into a certain distance, like 12 inches, you want to dictate, you know, you're putting on a lot of pressure to have them close in on you. So I almost like adding maybe a couple prowlers in here to add on to kind of like the short-range threat which might force them to try to approach you even faster, and then your dragon can pick its targets. I would also say maybe trying to fit like a war rider or some sort of cav in here, because I don't like using the bat swarm, and you don't want to use your dragon to capture objectives. That's a waste of points. I think Groblog is good, but yeah, because you have the fight for Numenorians already, it's like his special kind of goes to waste. So... I would almost just take a regular goblin captain. I realize Melthasarn has already the heroic march, but if he's your leader, it's nice to save the might on him as well. So, you know, you save a couple points on the goblin captain, so you can use that to make some of the adjustments that I suggested, you know, taking a war rider or upgrading a few goblins to Prowler. But honestly, like, I really do like the idea of this list. I think it's really nicely done with this alliance. I think, yeah, I think I would actually give this a low Valor. I do really like it. I'm happy with one Valor. <laughs> Yay, Dragon Lists! All right, we have a second Dragon List today, and that is from Alexander. Take it away. Ian, thank you for brightening Richard's mood a little bit, because I'm going to need it now going into the second list. It's just the number of times I flip-flop between about seven different possible ideas and just thinking to myself, None of these are good because all of them involve me having to spend 350 points on a dragon. Uh, I went back and forth on how to build a list like this. And I was like, you know what? If I have to have a dragon and I have to essentially commit nearly half of my points to a dragon, I'm just going to go all out. This list probably needs a ton of skill in order to effectively use it. It is unlikely to win me a single game. But as I built it, I was like, no, this is hilarious. I love the idea of a list like this actually working. Like a lot of the lists that I've come up with, I'm onto something. I just don't know what it is. So what I have is a dragon with fly and tough hide, and he has two bat swarms with him. I then have the Witch King of Angmar with three might, 17 will, three fate on a fell beast with the crown and the undying on a fell beast. There, that's the army list. It's five models. It has eight might points. 
And the whole idea is that I have to completely dictate movement because I have 12 inch move all with fly, hoping that uh, I don't come up against an army that has a lot of shooting. Because if I do, I'm, you know, my two Nazgul especially are in deep trouble. But I have two very strong spell casters who I can hope to use nullify big heroes or pull models out of position. One thing that I thought was useful that might come in handy, aside from, of course, having probably two of the hardest to defeat ring rates available, I also have the ability with three models to use barge. And I feel like that's something that could be used with an army like this, the ability to push entire sections of an army back three inches. And then instead of moving forward, moving back uh, to help essentially reposition and dictate the next turn's movement. It's very much a, a slow kind of play style, but at the same time, I think it could be interesting. The two bat swarms, of course, really help with the Witch King and the Undying. That way, the Undying not actually having heroic strike might not be such an issue in some combats. But aside from that, yeah, it's two strong spellcasters, three models that could potentially be very strong in close combat, and hoping for a lot of luck, and it's painful. But at least I'm at the end of it. It was a good time. No, I'm kidding. It was a very bad time. I hated writing this list so much. I mean, you may have hated writing it, but I actually kind of liked reading it. Um, you know, like normally in these kind of lists, it's a big no-no to put in a couple of troops. But considering they're bat swarms, there's two of them. They're, what, four wounds, I think? I think so. They're, like, they're pretty durable. And I think they actually add a lot to the list for you. Like, they make the fell beasts worth it more so. Like, the ring rate's much more reliable to be able to do, especially the Undying, because he doesn't have Heroic Strike. So I like that. They give you something for objectives if you need to. That's, like, pretty cheap compared to, like, everything else in your army. And on the note of the barge that you just brought up, like, you could, I think it wouldn't be too hard to, like, set it up so you get a bat swarm into an enemy hero. One of your other guys is nearby. They do a barge, barge everybody away, and then charge into the enemy hero, right? So you, you, there's some cheeky things you can do with, with the bat swarms there. So I, I, I like them. I'm, I'm actually kind of enjoying this list right now. It's incredibly high risk. There aren't many armies that I can even think of that come close to that. Yeah, this is a good idea. It's a fun idea. Whether you want to call it a dollar store version of Flying Circus, fine. But I think it could work. Lots of flyers here. But I think my issue is more with some of your selection. You know, specifically when it comes to the Dragon and the Undying. So for, I guess if you were going to pick the Undying, I was surprised that you didn't throw in Wormtongue instead of Tough Hide. Because that gives you an extra you know, synergy with the Undying regaining his will back. Otherwise, I'm not exactly sure why the Undying was chosen out of the ring raids. I know we talked about this in last episode specifically. You know, the Undying is a good leader in a smaller match, but in this one, the Witch King is your leader. So you're getting the Undying, so you have a tough secondary hero, but if you're just relying on Witch King casting spells, you almost would never turn on, you know, your bonus to try to regain will. There's no point. And I think this would be a great chance to take Wormtongue because you get the free cast a turn as well. But if you're going to go with Tough Hide, I think, you know, like you said, shooting is something you're scared of, as is the regular Flying Circus, where it's all ring raids. So maybe you take the Shadow Lord instead. You know, that's that's kind of where my thoughts are. So 
I would still give this, you know, I'm not going to go like minor or independent hero. So I think, I think I'll, I'll give this a fortitude. I definitely understand your argument there. One of the reasons I took the Undying is because if I can manage to keep his fell beast alive, he's very difficult to get rid of. And he's probably, aside from the Witch King, the best spellcasting ringwraith. The thing is, people won't be focusing on the Undying. This is what Richard is saying, right? Because he's not the leader. People will try to get the dragon off the board, and then probably your bat swarms, and then probably the Witch King. The Undying is going to be the last target, most likely. So, like, yes, you can protect him really easily, but that's that's not really your main weakness. Yeah, I think, for me, I had thought about, I, I thought of the Shadow Lord. I thought that would have been funny, because I, I ranked him so low, quite literally, last episode. And I was like, you know, that would really save me the, the, the bowfire thing. And I had thought of that, but at the same time, I was like, ah. The Undying's a better spellcaster. That would help me out a lot because he has 18 will to start with. It's kind of a situation where he doesn't usually get through all his will over the course of the game. I'd also thought of Kamul just because of his fighting ability, but he's not a good spellcaster. You know who would have been good? Someone you put in your top three, the Tainted, because you're basically a Hall Hero list. So if you had the Tainted and he activated his ability, it wouldn't affect your troops because you didn't really have any troops. And it's only a six-inch bubble, so your bass could easily stay outside the six inches. All your enemies' troops would not benefit from any heroic moves. So the thing you were saying at the beginning of your analysis, how you wanted your army to dictate the movement, that's how you could do it with the Tainted. Because it would almost guarantee that you would move first if you call a heroic move. So I would say that would have been a better pick than the Undying, and arguably better than the Shadow Lord. It depends on what your strategy was. Yeah, uh, that's actually that's actually a good pick. I think the uh, Tainted is something I would go for instead as well. But Alex, you keep on saying that the Undying is a better caster than Shadow Lord, but technically it's not. He just has the four extra will, so I guess that's what you mean by it. But, uh, you know, um, technically they have the same casting values. Well, this has actually been really interesting. Um I think I agree with what both you guys have said, and I'm just I'm just going to sneak my score in right now. I, I'm going to go with a fortitude, but I actually think it could have been a Valor if if it was changed, like what, what these guys are talking about. Like if it was like the Tainted was in there, or or you you took the, the Worm Tongue on the Dragon, if you're going to have the Undying in there. Yeah. Like you said, Alex, you had a good concept. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with a, a fortitude as well. I think you can win games right now, but... With Undying and no Worm Tongue, it's not optimized, but it can still do okay in certain situations, I think. In the last profile of the day in the monster reviews, we have the Dweller in the Dark. Um, let's have Richard go over the profile and the special rules. Okay, so this is the only warrior that we're going to talk about today. Dweller in the Dark, 75 points. It's a spirit monster infantry warrior. It's a move 8, a fight 7. Shoot value doesn't matter, but it's a 3+. plus. Strength 5, defense 5, 3 attack, 3 wounds, and courage 7. War gear, claws, and teeth. Special rules, resistant to magic and terror. And active special rule called murderous power. Whenever a dweller in the dark slays an enemy model in combat, it regains a single wound lost earlier in the battle. Rend is the only brutal power attack that allows a dweller to regain wounds in this manner. So I guess there's a few key stat lines that are different than the Cave Troll, which it is often compared to. The move 8, so it's a bit faster. The fight 7, which is a higher fight. 
but lower strength, lower defense, higher courage, and uh, resistant to magic. And obviously being able to regain wounds. So what do you guys think of this profile? I don't remember because the Cave Troll episode was so long ago, but I think we had somewhat of a debate between the two. I know there are people who prefer the Dweller, but I think the Cave Troll is more of my playstyle, but I think the Dweller is just like a faster, more glass cannon kind of profile. Like he has slightly less defense, although he can regain wounds. So maybe it's up for debate whether he's more um, tanky. But I, I think the reason why most of us prefer the Cave Troll is because of the base size. The Dweller is on a 60 mil base. I see the arguments for the Dweller, for the speed and, and its special rules, and the Fight 7, but I think they play a really similar role at like the 70-80 point mark in a Moria army, but I find myself going back to the Cave Troll every time. Yeah, just your personal play style, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you could always mix the two in the list as well. I agree about the base size thing. I, I 100%, I think that's, like, if the Cave Troll was on a 60 millimeter base, I think you'd see a lot more Dwellers popping up because then the, the differences between them get reduced a lot. I've seen too many times, I think, with the Dweller being Defense 5 with three wounds, where it gets swamped with a big hero, and in one turn it, it's gone. It's a little bit tough to maneuver, because for some reason its wings are only for show. It's a little bit like a penguin that way. You know, he's fun, he can be good, but I think he's a little bit too clunky, quite literally. Moves a massive base can't fly i don't know if you guys have any uh, specific thoughts on the fight seven i think it's really impressive on paper especially seeing fight seven in an evil list that's so cheap to me it's like i always want to take it but then i remember that moria has bat swarms and fight six and seven becomes really not a big difference to me and so that's another reason why i'm okay with the cave trolls fight six because it's usually enough paired with a bat swarm that's that's a really good point because <laughs> It's kind of an anomaly on this profile, right? If you look at the special rule where, like, the, the murderer's power where he can get wounds back and, like, the low defense and stuff, that kind of says to me that he's just there to, like, go munch troops, you know, kill, like, two troops a turn. But then he has fight seven. Like, what, is he only going to be, like, fighting Gladrium Guard? Like, what's, like, it's kind of, it doesn't synergize well with the profile, even though it's awesome. I think um, one instance, though, where that does come into play is it prevents the bulging from smaller heroes. Because I think even from like a Bulg or Azog or Elendil, like, like they don't really want hero combat into that. It's, it's not as reliable, right? So I guess you can say that it's a bit of a deterrent compared to the Cave Troll and having resistant to magic as well. So... In a ways, I would say that the Dweller is better against heroes. Yeah, I mean, he's got the Courage 7 as well. There are times where you want to charge a, a Cave Troll into a terrifying hero, and you just, like, you don't think it's worth it, because if, if he doesn't make the Courage check, then he's sitting still and throwing a rock that turn, pretty much guaranteed. So the Dwellers can be more reliable, but at the same time, it's like, it all comes down to a roll-off if you're facing a hero as Fight 7. or It's just it's still an expensive model to gamble if you want to throw him at a hero. Like, Dane can kill him easy in one turn, if but then he can also force Dane to use resources. So it's, yeah. I think it just kind of comes back down to the base size thing, because it's not just going to be, like, the Dweller against one hero, right? Even if the Dweller has the higher fight value, he's probably going to have, like, five six maybe seven dice rolling against him and all of a sudden the odds don't look so good yeah it's more of a specialist model i think if you know what you're going to use him for 
and you're using him to his max potential, I think he could be a really, really solid choice. But uh, I think for like general well-roundedness, I'd still probably go for the Cave Troll. I think I might have given Cave Troll an 8, if I remember right. I think I would go slightly lower with the Dweller. It's not to say I would take the Cave Troll over him every time. Like in a larger point list, I might do like one of each or something, but I think I'm more comfortable with using the Cave Troll. Probably give Dweller a 6. He has a lot of uses and really a lot of cool special rules, but I don't know if any of them are necessary when I'm building a list where I think like, oh, I got to have a Dweller in there. But you can certainly build lists that are pretty effective around this profile. I think I'm going to echo that, Charles. Yeah, I think I'm going to go with a 6 as well. But his usefulness is definitely kind of like like meta-dependent. Like if your local meta has a lot of magic and stuff like that, or if they have a lot of like lower fight heroes, I guess, where you can make good use of his fight value seven if you want to. Yeah, I think there there are definitely times when you want to take it over the cave troll, but that really depends on what you you know you're going to be fighting. Yeah, I think similar thoughts, but I'll give him a, a higher score at a seven. I just think he does do some things that the cave troll can't do. You know, like, I think the move 8 on a monster is pretty decent as well. I understand the base size argument, but, you know, if you're playing Moria, they're all move 5, so the additional move is actually quite good if you don't have any Warg Marauders. You know, like, armies with throwing weapons might not want to just stay at a 6-inch charge range from you. You know, you have a bit more striking range. And then, and then the Terror, of course, you know. It almost allows you, you know, if you're taking a Goblin Force not to take a shaman if you're playing at low points values you can kind of gamble that and you know if you come up against like the return of the king legendary legion or black numenorians it's like hey you know i got a monster that can take care of that i mean i'm pretty much in agreement with you and ian i'll give him a six all right richard let's go over your list with the dweller profile okay I guess I had a similar idea to Alex, um, going for a smaller army, but mine unfortunately cannot fly. So I have uh, a goblin captain with shield leading five goblins with shield in my first warband, and the goblin captain is my leader. And in my second warband, I have a cave drake leading two dwellers and a bat swarm. And in the third warband, I have one cave drake and two dwellers. Uh, this is a total of 13 models. I think. I think we've done kind of these small lists before. I need seven models to break, and I will be hiding my goblin captain, which is my leader, alongside the five goblins somewhere. You know, if there's a back objective on my side, I might try to hold that. Otherwise, you know, I'm going to try to stay away. You know, if people come after me, I can march a couple times, you know, to try to get away from them. And, you know, at the end of the day, I can just shield as long as possible. And depending on how much they want to get at my leader for the points. And then I have for my main force, basically you would have to kill all of them to break me, which is going to be tough. So why I think the Dweller kind of fits into this all monster kind of list is because the Cave Drake is also move eight. So it's actually quite mobile. I think the Cave Trolls would not be able to keep up here. And I think we've also talked about this before, but the big base sizes might actually be a help in the all hero because I don't have the model size or the model count to go line to line. So with the big base sizes, I can hold up chokes and block off different parts of the army. And I just think, yeah, with the cave drakes and the dwellers just running around, 
I can hopefully outmaneuver most armies that, you know, aren't all cav and I can, you know, hit them where they're less prepared and, you know, I can always pull out if possible. But yeah, I, I just think that like it could hit quite heavily, you know, and if they commit too much to chase after my, my little uh, goblin contingent, you know, maybe that's where I can flank them. But yeah, that's the idea. Uh, what do you guys think? I like it. I've seen you play a, a similar list in terms of strategy with the Spider Queen and the Watcher in the Water quite a few times, so I have confidence that it could definitely work. It's funny, as you were reading that out, I was like, ah, you're going to use the, the oversized base size actually to your advantage, turning problems into solutions. That's Richard for you. Yeah, no, it's... It's a it's a solid list, I think. I especially like the two cave drakes in there. I'm pretty sure you took a two cave drake army to a previous episode. I don't remember what the rest of that was, but it definitely wasn't four dwellers. That and just the bat swarm. I have enough bad memories of playing you with one or two bat swarms. It's not fun. Anybody that goes chasing after the, the goblin captain and the shield is making a grave mistake because they're opening themselves up to two cave drakes and four dwellers that move eight. So... If they do that, you're in you're in good position already. So yeah, I think I'm gonna have to give it. I think just because I'm afraid of the, I look at the list and it actually it scares me a bit. So I'm gonna give it a valor. I like the idea of having two cave drakes with their massive bases and then four 60 mil. That is like it would extend to like as long as any battle line in the game. I think most battle lines. The scary thing is that each Cave Drake Warband is at least 300 points, and with only one Might, if you need to use Might like in a Maelstrom, that's really scary to think about, although they are all movement 8 minimum. I just think it might be a bit of a gamble in certain situations um, if you want to deploy together. The Goblin Warband moves a lot slower, so I guess it'll just come down to what the terrain is like and, and like where you want to start, but they might have to play catch-up. I almost think it's better to drop the Goblins of Shield and the Bass Swarm and just take two Marauders, because you can kind of get sneaky with a breakpoint with a Marauder as well, because they have to kill all four parts of the model to score that. So even though you would be at nine models, it's arguably just as hard to break. But on the other hand, you kind of need the Bass Swarm. You don't have a Heroic Strike, and 700 points is a points level where you're going to be facing really high competitive good heroes with Heroic Strike. Like, you're already going to have trouble by having one because some of those lists have two beat sticks and maybe magic on top, and it just feels like it's a lot to stop for the Dweller. I don't know if the Dweller is better in, like, a more well-rounded list where they're just poking into a battle line because in this case, they might get surrounded more easily, and I'm just worried about that as well. So I don't know how this would do in a tournament setting. I think I think there are a lot of weaknesses that you might have to worry about, but it also has that surprise factor because if you tell people you're playing Moria walking to a tournament, no one's going to think, oh, he's going he's gonna to pull up with two cave drakes and four dwellers. And like it might just win you a couple games. You have a lot of high-moving, hard-hitting heroes or hard-hitting models. Any player who deploys their heroes a little bit incorrectly, you could just swing around and take them out. And you know, even if you don't break them, you might still like be able to win some of those games just based on your experience with these models. So I think this would be like a hero of fortitude normally, but 
with the surprise factor in it. And for me, I always give points for that because I have experienced winning games that were not considered very good, but because no one has experienced playing against those lists, it gave me an edge. So I, th- I think I would give this a, a Valor because of that edge. So I wanted to give this a Valor, and I just started thinking about my points in this list. And functionally, you only really have two because the captain's going to be sitting at the back of the board. So he's not going to be close to your monsters to be able to use them well. And also, he's just like, he's going to be saving them for break tests if you break, you know, because you don't want your leader running away and losing those VPs. Or if like some models get close, you can heroic move away. So you basically only have two mic points on the cave drakes, and you're probably going to want to save those for combats. So that means your opponent's going to have a lot of might that they can just call heroic moves with. So you're not going to be getting your monsters charged with the cave drakes for most of the game. Maybe outside of that first engagement or if you manage some barges and stuff. Which means it's like they're just not as effective. And I could, I could just, I could see if, it, if an army has like a couple, um, like two striking heroes, if they can just go around and just start taking out the, uh, the dwellers. And then you kind of end up in, in a lot of trouble with the cave drakes because... I don't know, but the, the K-Drakes are really good. I do really like the list, though. <laughs> uh, I, I, don't I think even, I'm out of fortitude, like a high fortitude. I don't even think that Richard even mentioned the 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 egg nests, did he? Cause he did not. Because the, the egg nests, those are useful. We talked about that in a previous episode where Richard took two cave drakes. And I want to say I find it really amusing that we're all sitting here going, you know... I think you could really win with this list purely because if you say I have Moria and then start just pulling all these models out of your case, uh, your opponent may be dazed for the first two or three turns, not understanding what's going on. You could just win it right there because nobody expects six monsters in a list. That's that's the whole strategy is just surprise them with stuff that they didn't expect. Don't forget to add to the surprise by only moving all your monsters like five or six inches each turn for the first like four turns and then boom! They move eight and jump the line. <laughs> They've taken the bridge. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'm surprised to even get one Valor, so two. You know, I'll take it. All right, guys, let's move on to our open topic for today, which we'll be discussing our favorite armies under 500 points. topic for today is our favorite armies under 500 points and we'll kind of be going over some lists that we think do well in smaller game settings so in this case the way we're defining low points is 500 or below so just to kick off the discussion what do you guys think are some attributes and things that are higher value at low points that you would look for or that you would want in a low point level tournament low point level list Sildor. I'd look for him every time. That sounds like a meme, Alex. <laughs> I feel like something that represents like like lo- low points really well is uh, Dale as an army. It's one of those things where it doesn't really work well at a lot of other points values, but all of a sudden, if you can get, I guess, like numbers at like a reasonable fight value, like fight four, all of a sudden that becomes like pretty good at low points values. Yeah, I had Dale in one of the armies in my list today, and I think 
it, it just them being able to spam out fight four. So I think generally fight four is more useful at low points and being able to have fight four warriors under like 10 points is, is really nice. Kind of in the same way that fiefdoms can spam out fight four. And Dale also now has access to pretty cheap three attack heroes. So I agree with you there. Yeah, I think, um, you know, talking about spamming out, I think lists with good heroes or Valor and Legend are quite good because you're not going to be able to field too many warbands or bring too many heroes in a low points game. So being able to fill out your warbands for those. And also, like, I would say multifaceted heroes. And a lot of the times it means being able to fight and march at the same time because that takes out the need to bring a captain. So like heroes like Theoden... Okay, Sulean's always good, but big heroes like that, and also Dane, you know, you even see Dane with just a warband of dwarves at like, you know, 300 points or something, it's just scary. So I think having that flexibility built into your uh, big heroes. I think single single threat armies work especially well at 500 or lower. Earlier today, we talked about the Depths of Moria, I think the Balrog well, obviously, it wouldn't really work at like 350 because he is 350, but you know, maybe at like 500. Earlier this year, I played a list at a tournament that was Helm Hammerhand, and at 600, I could kind of feel its weaknesses. I actually struggled pretty hard at that tournament because I could only get captains after a Helm. But at 500 and lower, I think in our Helm episode, we all of us gave it pretty good scores because. It's at the points level where other lists likely won't have anything that will be able to stop it because you're putting so many points in that one threat. So in like a Numenor list, if you take like a Lindil or similar to the Helm Hammerhand, there's very little at that points level that can stop them. Especially, you know, Elendil, Glorfindel, if they have any sort of magic resistance at 500 points or lower, generally your enemy won't have a good enough spellcaster to stop him. Yeah, that's partially why I said Isildur, because when we were talking about this, the first army that came up for me for some reason was Numenor with both Elendil and Isildur, just because at 500 points, what are you going to come up with that can stop that? It becomes just a matter of fact, your opponent not being able to field enough options to stop that kind of thing. I think Richard brought up a good point with the warband space. I think armies that like more elite armies, if they have enough slots with like efficient hero valor and legends, if they have enough slots without needing to take a third hero, that's usually good. Because I found that certain lists at certain points level, like a couple times I had with like Hero Fungal or, or certain lists where even like Rivendell sometimes, where I just have like 80, 90 points left over and you don't want to just take like a, a one drop hero and it gets a little bit awkward. I find that lists with a lot of good, cheap heroes or like a pretty cheap hero of Valor are really good at low points because they'll be able to fill out their warbands and not need that extra hero. I don't know. This might be a bit meta-dependent, but I know, you know a lot of people have said in the past, um, I think also North of the Shire podcast, our fellow Canadian podcast in Ontario, they've also mentioned that good, good forces in the new edition seem a bit stronger. Would you say then evil actually, you know, brings up their competitiveness a bit because generally they have like the a smaller, smaller heroes than good, uh, more captain level heroes, especially, you know, in a force like Mordor, they have so many. So that makes, I guess, their choices 
you know, more abundant and lower, you know, lower points values because maybe those captain level heroes won't scale as hard, but in 500 or less, they're very, very valuable. I think you can argue that evil might have more um, competitive options at lower points. There are definitely good good side armies that have that as well, like Minas Tirith, Fiefdoms, lots of cheap heroes that are considered competitive. But yes, overall, if you're just comparing all of good versus all of evil, evil, I feel like, is better at lower points. The other thing you brought up about Suladan being always good, it reminded me of banners and banner effects. I think any army that has a banner effect or like a banner attached to a hero... We kind of talked about in the in the Bard episode that you know it's it's always better than paying 25 points for a banner, but I think that's even more so at lower points because 25 points feels like a lot more than it is at like 800 points. And spending 25 points on a banner at like a 400 point army, you feel it because it's almost like a quarter of your break point sometimes. Also, just banner coverage is a bigger portion of the battle line. Like a 12-inch banner effect from Bard probably will cover your whole army at like 400 points or 500 points, but probably not if it was like an 800-point army. Thank you for bringing that last bit up, Charles, because yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is it like it's it's more efficient in a way, right? Because it's covering more of a percentage of your army. So yeah, that, that was a really good point. So I guess to give an example of what we were talking about earlier with the warbands, I think for that reason, like Azog's Hunters is really good. Um, at low points, they have some pretty good like mid-tier heroes. Their main weakness is like their, their low defense, but they can spam out pretty well at low points. And I don't feel like you have to worry about courage as much at low points. What do you guys think? We all know that they're not having courage buff or not having fearless is bad, but it's probably not as big of a deal at low points, right? Uh, I guess you're less likely to see like Return of the King Legendary Legions around or like, like Numenor, Black Numenorean spam ones. I don't know. Because terror would still be pretty good at low points, you know, like a terror list. You're just less likely to have like a Harbringer or something because usually heroes that give that effect are more expensive. Like you still might see like a budget ring wraith, but less likely to see like, I don't know, like a Sauron or, or something like that. And I guess with Mordor too and Umbar, I think Umbar has most of its uh, utility in like two or three models, so... They could just really spam out because they're another cheap fight for army that you can just have a lot of models and their heroes are all under 100 points. So I think they can really do really well at 500 or lower as well, just because they, they get everything they need for pretty cheap already. Well, also just tagging on to the, the fight for train, um, Arnor at like 500 points, I think is like their ideal level because they have... Like, you can get one of each of the years. So you can get Arvidu, you can get Malvath, you can get a captain, and then a banner and, like, 33 troops. So 22 normal guys and then 11 rangers. And it's it's just, it's a lot of high defense, high fight value models to deal with. And it's it's very overwhelming to deal with. And then it also feels like more than 36 models, too, because of the 5-up save. It almost feels like you've got, you know, mid-40s level of models because it's just so hard to get rid of them. The other one I was thinking of was Defenders of Helm's Deep Legendary Legion. 
because they have a lot of heroes that are like fight six that are relatively cheap. They have access to fight five in the elves and in the buffed rural guard to fight five. Um, but at the same time, they can hoard out in cheap warriors or Rohan. So I feel like they have a lot of versatility to get the numbers that you want at low points and really cost efficient heroes. And so they can have good numbers and then also really good shooting and just they'll be able to get everything they need at like 500 usually, I'd say. Yeah, just to jump on that last point, I think shooting is especially strong at lower points because I think blinding light is a lot less prevalent. And I think people talked about this to death, but, you know, before Rangers of Athelion, Legendary Legion was nerfed, right? That was uh, quite oppressive. And even before the Mirkwood Rangers Legendary Legion came out, I know it's not the best. We have a local player here that plays it at tournaments occasionally. And, you know, he he does actually do quite well at the lower points one, you know. And I think it's just, you know, it's a lot of bows going at, you know, there's fewer models. So if if you get some, like a good shooting game, you can actually take down a good portion of the models. And yeah, it's... Yeah, I think that's why, Ian, earlier you mentioned Dale as well, I think, is because of the shooting. So it's you just have less tools to deal with shooting arm. So I think I've got a list that kind of hits both of your uh, factors there, Richard, with uh, with like a reasonable amount of shooting and like a, a points-efficient hero at lower levels. I'm going to go with Theodred's Guard because you can get a lot of throwing spears and stuff in there and like reasonable numbers. So reasonable number of bows, reasonable amount of throwing spears in there. So that's a lot of shooting. And also, at lower points values, like, Theodred is, like, a 95 to 100-point hero. And in the right conditions, you know, if he's not fighting, like, something that can, that like, something, like, less than fight five, like, if he's just going through troops, he hits, like, a 200-point hero. Like, he just goes through troops, and he can he can do a lot of damage to other enemy heroes, too, if he gets the drop on them with Heroic Strike, right? So you get that, and having somebody who can hit like that, but also still getting reasonable numbers because he's so cheap, I think makes a big difference. Also, yeah, the Legendary Legion bonuses are just really nice to have. I think that they, they actually add a lot to that list. Yeah, didn't you win a 400-point tournament with that list? Uh, I did, yeah, 400.1, um, just, like, I guess just almost two years ago now, yeah. It was, like, it was, like, Daedrid and Alfhelm and, like, three cav models, two or three cav models, and the rest was just, uh, like, guys on foot, mix of Royal Guard, normal guys with uh, throwing spears and outwalkers. This might be up for debate, but do you guys think that, like, more... Because uh, I'm, I'm just thinking about when Richard brought up Rangers of the Thalian, like, the old one, how good it was because no one could stop the shooting. Do you think lower list is where you could rely more on, like, all-in tactics? Like, less balanced lists and more just, like, a more skewed and one, like, one strategy kind of list? The one I'm thinking of is Con Chariots. Because generally the the counters are like Spectres, Sentinels, and Magic, and you don't see those as much at low points. And Khan can spam out Fight 4. Their cavalry are only 13 points. And I feel like they also have decent shooting because they have the 100% bow if you don't take infantry. And if you come up against like opponents that don't have Transfix, don't have Compel, don't have uh, Fell Light, it might be a good shout. I think so. I think I would agree in a general sense having Skewless being a lot more popular at these points values because it is so hard to write a list that can have answers to everything. Like at 400 points, like there's no chance. At 500 points, maybe. Maybe you could get one that could have like a reasonable answer to everything. But even then, I still think Skewless would be able to take those on, right? Yeah, even if you do have an answer to everything, I, I feel like th- I feel like that's you're on to something with that. 
Yeah, the other the other skewed lists um, that I was thinking of is like all hero lists. All hero lists are are pretty risky sometimes, and you're more going kind of all in into one strategy because you have so few models. But at low points, if you pick the right heroes and your opponent just doesn't have anything in their list to to counter them, yeah, I, I think it might it could do decent in some situations. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Because I mean, like if you look at the Black Riders, right, like at a 500 or 600 point game. You might have less riders, but that kind of, you know, I I would have to think quite a while, like, what I would have to bring to kind of counter that while bringing a list that is viable for, like, other other matchups. Whereas, like, I feel like an 800-point list, you know, if I have, like, oh, I have enough of my bodyguard guys, I have, you know, maybe some magic to cast myself, you know, I got shooting... Like those kind of things, I got resistant to magic. Then you know, even if they have a couple more raids, like I'm not necessarily more scared. I guess same with if you want to take a list like like Thorns Company or something. I know most people would probably take Thorns Company and Fellowship for just narrative reasons and for fun, but I think they do better in, in lower points too, just because less less magic overall, and they'll still be outnumbered, but they won't be outnumbered as much as. Like, if they were to play, like, a 1,000 points, like our Thorns Company episode, a 1,000 points, you had, what, like, 15, 16 models. You just, your opponent's going to be, like, tripling, at least tripling your numbers. But I feel like at lower points, you might it might be more doable. There's less things that you need to kill to break your enemy. The last point I have here is, do you guys think that fight, fight value, uh, a, a certain fight value is better for low points? In terms of, like, heroes. So, you know, in, like, Rohan, you see a lot of Fight 5 heroes. It feels like at higher points they struggle more because there's more chance that their opponent will have Fight 6, Fight 7 heroes. Or do you think that is really list-dependent and doesn't matter that much in terms of, like, how useful heroes are at a certain points level? I think you feel the points value more. By that I mean, like, if you have a few Fight Value 5 heroes in the list, you're going to have reasonable numbers. If you have a couple Fight 6 value heroes in the list at, like, low, like below 500 points, your numbers are going to be pretty shy, right? They're going to be pretty low. And that's, that, that's enough of a factor to swing things, right? So, yeah, I, I, think, I think, yeah, you don't really need to necessarily need to have big, high Fight Value, like, Fight 6, Fight 7 characters to do well. Yeah, but then at higher points, I feel like if you don't have like a high fight value hero, you almost want like a separate way of dealing with high fight value heroes, just because it might be difficult for you. You don't want to you don't want to rely on like heroic strike to do everything. And I guess because there's less heroic strikes, like monsters could be considered better as well. A troll, for example, would probably see less immobilize in their enemy's armies, so it's more likely that it'll do damage in like a smaller points game. So would you guys think that non-monster heroes are better at lower points values because there's less things that can counter them? Or do you still go for the monster heroes because they're more efficient? I think it depends on the list. They're less likely to struggle at low points. I was just going to say, I think it's like maybe a final note if we're, if we're kind of wrapping things up. Just that a lot of uh, legendary legions seem to be built for very specific points values. And a lot of them are, yeah, like 500 or 400 points and they, they seem to excel there. I don't know if you, you well, I mean, we've talked about it before. Like, there's like uh, a lot of like the scouts list, like Uglick scouts, uh, like same with Lurch's scouts. We just like just mentioned Thedrid's guard. Yeah. The, the Helm Hammerhand list. Yeah. 
you brought out the Black Eight Opens, too, in one of our episodes, our favorite unnamed heroes, and that looked really strong at low points. Just a sheer amount of orcs with plus one to wound that you can take at 500 points. And also, like, the Troll Chieftain in the list is usually not, like, super impressive, but at 500 points, there's not very many things that people can throw at it if they don't want to throw, like, their leader into him. Usually, a lot of times, they'll only have, like, their one hero with Heroic Strike, and you don't want to throw it at the Troll Chieftain, so it feels like the Troll's automatically better at low points because of that. That's been our discussion on our favorite armies under 500 points. You can find all of the lists that we shared today on Facebook. Just search Into the West on Facebook, and you should be able to find our page with all of our army lists. Thank you all for listening. Look forward to the next episode of Into the West Podcast.